Welcome to Regenerated Radio. This podcast aims to take important theological concepts from a confessional Baptist perspective and apply them to a modern context in the life of the church and the individual believer. Thanks for joining us. Let's get started. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to Regenerated Radio. We are in Season 3 in Episode 6, and I am so excited about today's episode. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of, of Twitter controversies and all sorts of stuff recently, and a lot of it revolves around the topic of classical theism. So I wanted to reach out to somebody who I know knows what they're talking about uh, in that field. I certainly would consider myself a classical theist, although I'm definitely not as knowledgeable as some of the guys that are speaking to it right now. And so I thought I'd bring one of those guys on. Uh, and so I grabbed Josh, and I'm really appreciative of having Josh come on today, and Josh Sommer of the Baptist Broadcast. And so we will ch- uh, bring him on in just a minute, but just a couple of quick housekeeping things before we do, uh, as usual. So first and foremost, uh, if you haven't been following the YouTube channel, you're not subscribed, definitely click the subscribe button. And like and all of those things uh, and then check out on the other things that I'm doing on the YouTube channel I do intend to put out some more content pretty soon on book reviews and things like that I've not really been doing that as much as I wanted to it's in my in the intro video but I never actually do it so I need to get to that but I am doing that 1689 uh, exposition and that's been really fun uh, episode 4 of creation just went up and I'll be doing more uh, over the coming weeks and trying to dive through that Uh, So I'm really excited about that. It's a fun series, and I hope you guys are enjoying it as well. So definitely check that out. Uh, Also, go to Instagram, Facebook, and, you know, check those out as well. Make sure you're following on those places for more updates and some little, you know, clips from the podcast, stuff like that. And then the Spring Store, of course, uh, which you can find in the description of the podcast or the video here to find merchandise. And again, all of that's just extra stuff. It's kind of fun uh, for me to do on the side, but it's absolutely no obligation, although I am pretty proud of a couple of those designs, so definitely check those out as well. All right, well, let's not waste any time because I have a feeling that this episode is going to be heavy and it's going to take a lot of explanation, uh, and it should be fun, though. So before we do, uh, let me go ahead and bring Josh on. Here we go. Welcome, Josh. How are you doing? Hey, man. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'm I'm doing well. I'm really pleased to have you. Let me pray for us really quickly, and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time, the ability for the uh, for us to come together over the internet and and talk about something uh, that can be controversial, but uh, you know we believe is really rooted in your word. God, we we pray that you would uh, you would be with us and that your Spirit would illuminate the word for us and illuminate those people who are listening, uh, and that you would speak through us in different ways. God, we pray that we would be clear uh, and that we would not speak error, but we would speak your truth. God, we love you, and we we pray that uh, all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, well, Josh, why don't you give us a little bit of a bio uh, of yourself? You know, I know you're a pastor, and you have your own uh, your own YouTube channel, which feel free, by all means, plug away. Uh, but go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, first, my name is Josh Summer. I, uh, you, have, you, have, you didn't give me a script, brother, so I'm not sure, like, how to... <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Um, no, no, no. You're good. You're good. Um, I'm a conversational kind of guy. <laughs> I, yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> yeah, that's that's always good. Um, so I, I currently serve as a pastor of Victory Baptist Church uh, in Kansas City, Missouri. I've been there for, it'll be three years this April, and uh, it's been a blessing, absolute blessing to be there for uh, myself personally and my family. Um and so that's that's currently where I am in a uh, in, and that's in a full time professional uh, capacity. There, um, I am a, a graduate of uh, Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, the Spurgeon College. There, um, I only have so far my undergraduate uh, degree, but am currently uh, pursuing the uh, Masters of Divinity over at uh, the uh, Institute of Reformed Baptist Studies. Um, and they are actually about to change their name, by the way. So, uh, but I think for now it's still Institute of Reformed Baptist Studies. And uh, if you guys are looking for, you know, some solid online classes, solid curriculum, you know, check them out. They've got a good uh, church sponsorship program as well that brings the cost of that tuition yeah, down quite a ways. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, definitely check that out. Um, and uh, other than that, uh, most importantly, you know, I'm a I'm a husband uh, to my beautiful wife, Christina. And a father of three children. Uh, our oldest just turned four. His name's Oliver. Then our middle child, he's about to turn three in May. That's Augustine. 
And then our youngest is Eleanor. She just turned one last December. So we've got a lot of, a lot of things going on here in the summer household. A uh, lot of, lot going on. Um, and not only that, but I have the YouTube channel. I, I do, as you mentioned, the, the Baptist broadcast. Um, and that channel has not always been called the Baptist broadcast, but it's, it's been, kind of in existence for the last several years uh, under different names, but I've settled on the Baptist broadcast um, uh, because I, I really want to focus on um, confessional, you know, Baptist uh, orthodoxy, so to speak, like, like what is Baptist theology? Um, and uh, that doesn't necessarily mean hanging on to the, uh, you, you know, doing every episode on Baptist distinctives. Uh, right. Obviously I don't, just address Baptist distinctives. I do a, a lot of other things and, in, and in including, you know, recent conversation on divine simplicity and, and classical theism, generally speaking, has been kind of uh, the main focus uh, because it's such an important and fundamental issue. Um, so if you guys are, are YouTube watchers, I'm sure your, your audience is, I mean, they wouldn't be watching this, this video right now. Right. So right. Uh, you guys can also check out the, the Baptist broadcast yeah, and then that's, that's on that's linked right below uh, the video. So definitely awesome. go down to the description awesome. and grab that. And there's a podcast version of that as well. So pretty much most of everything that's on video is also uh, accessible uh, in podcast form. And you can find it on iTunes, Spotify, and, and other other platforms. So um, that's, uh, that's, that's pretty much it in a nutshell. I don't have any formally published works. I have... Mm-hmm. You know some academic stuff that I've I've put up on academia.edu, and uh, I have a profile on there, so you can always check that out. And then I do have one book out on Amazon that's really just a compendium of a sermon series I'm I'm going through right now uh, on an Orthodox catechism, and so part one of Excellent. that is out on Amazon. Yep, yep. So um, that's that's pretty much it, man. In a nutshell, that's awesome. Yeah, you have a very similar setup to me um, as far as. You know, the, the YouTube channel that goes to audio, goes to podcast, you know, you're doing a lot of confessional work and uh, and, and broadly ortho, like Baptist orthodoxy sort of things, right, which is sort right. of similar to what I'm trying to do. And I really, uh, I really appreciate you for that. And I've enjoyed, I enjoy your videos. And I hope you guys, if you're listening, that you go and find Josh as well and uh, appreciate you enjoy his videos as well. Okay. Well, like I said, this is a, a very... Uh, complex and deep topic. Uh, and, you know, I, I like to try to... If you listen to the the podcast opening on on Spotify or on Apple Podcasts or wherever you guys are listening um, to these things, you hear me say that I like to try to bring these complex theological concepts and bring them down to a lay level, something that people could understand, just the average churchgoer. Uh, and that's not always possible, quite frankly. Or not, I shouldn't say not possible, but it, it makes it, it some some concepts are so difficult and complex that uh, you have to really take more than an hour. And so I just want to front load people and make sure that they understand that. You know, if this flies over your head, listen to it a few times or go and find more resources. Be inspired to think about, man, this this could be something that could be really interesting for me to study and go deeper in and uh, go and do that rather than, uh, you know, worrying too much about uh, I don't understand this right now. Uh, it's going over my head. That's that's understandable and it's fine. Uh, so just want to front load everybody with that information because uh, classical theism has some some concepts that are, are difficult to grasp um, and that are difficult to even articulate well. So um, that's, again, that's why I'm, I'm bringing on someone else to do it <laughs> so that I don't have to be that guy. <laughs> so thanks, Josh. <laughs> well, we'll, we'll, we'll see if I'm any better. I, 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 <laughs> well, it's, it's conversational. So, you know, I, if we'll, yeah, we'll cover yeah. each other's, we'll cover each other's errors, hopefully. <laughs> right, All right. right. Well, well, why don't we start off then by broad, kind of broadly defining. And again, I know this is a really broad topic, but as broadly as we can define uh, what classical theism is and if if you want to if you're listening to this if you're not live right now and you're listening to this later on if you want to go back and listen to my episode with dr craig carter first on the great tradition that might be really helpful like prior listening to this so just a quick side note um but yeah why don't you go ahead and with that in mind uh, give us a as good a definition as you can for classical theism yeah and before i get into that uh, you know I, some of the best learning that that i've ever experienced is when i've been forced to either listen to something or read something along with a dictionary right oh, yeah <laughs> or, or or even google at hand if you don't have an actual dictionary mm-hmm. uh that that can be very very profitable so don't give up if you don't understand the concepts go back and re-listen and 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 be studious and, and try to figure out what the terms mean but yes. we'll 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 try as hard as we can to to, to make this accessible so Definition of classical theism is difficult um, because you can you can def- you can define it 
dogmatically, um, but you can also define it historically. And in some ways, the historical definition may be more fitting because it's classical theism. So it kind mm-hmm. of already has like a, a reference to uh, something that uh, that is historical, something that, it, you know, uh, has been the case in the past. And so, you know, in, in a sense, the, the historical definition may be more fitting, but um, but I, I suppose what you're looking for here and, and probably what your listeners would expect to hear would be more of a dogmatic definition. So what do people usually mean when they say classical theism is, is the question. Um, and, and like, what would I mean if I said classical theism or when I say classical theism? Um, and, and typically when someone uses that term, they are, uh, they are intending to communicate the, uh, the historical, creedal, uh, dare I say, confessional hmm. doctrine of God. It is, uh, when we say classical theism, we are, we are looking specifically, I'm not saying it doesn't have implications for anything else, but we're looking specifically and primarily at theology proper, the doctrine of God. And, um, and I would just say that the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, chapter 2, article 1, has a, a good working dogmatic definition yes. mm-hmm. of what we mean when we say classical theism. So I'm just going to read that. Um, and then we'll talk a little bit about maybe the historical definition, but, um, but, but paragraph one of, of chapter two of the, uh, the second London confession of faith. And this is pretty much uh, the case as well with the Westminster and the Savoy. Um, it says the Lord, our God is but one only living and true God whose subsistence is in and of himself, infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any, but himself, a most pure spirit invisible without body parts or passions who only hath immortality dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto who is immutable immense eternal incomprehensible almighty every way infinite most holy most wise most free most absolute working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and withal most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. So that's a fantastic overview of the doctrine of God. Um, and then, of course, it, it, it breaks that out more so and, and specifies more as you go on through the chapter, on through paragraph two and three. Mm-hmm. Um, but notice there that the unity of God, the unity of the Godhead is really in view. And, and then the, uh, the, what, what some would call the incommunicable attributes of God, you know, so when we're talking about uh, infinity, um, incomprehensibility, uh, you know, uh, this, the, this phraseology here, without body, parts, there's an Oxford comma there, without body, parts, or passions, that's typically what people allude to or refer to when they're, when they're using the term classical theism. So here, you know, kind of in the outline, I, uh, I pinned in some, some you know, mm-hmm. terms that, that people's minds might go to when they use that phrase, and that's aseity. God's self-existence, God's aseity, uh, his existence is through himself. He does not exist through anything other than himself, which is why we say, as, as those who hold to classical theism, we say God is not composed of parts because if he was, he would exist through those parts, not through himself, right? So right. he would be dependent, he would be contingent. So aseity, immutability, God does not change. He doesn't suffer any sort of uh, actualization of a potential. Uh, there's no, uh, there's no formal motion or movement in God. Uh, there's, uh, impassibility is another one, uh, that God is not passable. Uh, there's no, you know, changes in God's emotional state of being to use that language. Mm -hmm. Um, he, he doesn't, he doesn't suffer, uh, those kinds of, uh, those kinds of passions. Um, and then you have the doctrine of simplicity, and all of these doctrines kind of mutually inform one another. 
Um, and uh, the doctrine of simplicity would just be the doctrine of non-composition. You would just say uh, there is no composition in God. God is not composed. Um, yeah, or the, oh. the terminology of uh, omni, right? I've heard used fairly right. often. God is, like, and in his simplicity, he is all or omni. I'm not really sure if you want to. Right. Well, sometimes, like, yeah, in, in kind of high Reformed orthodoxy, like in, in Peter Van Maastricht, um, simplicity... Uh, well, let's take another attribute. Let's take a let's take an attribute. You know, whether or not we should even call these attributes is is you know <laughs> up for questioning as well. But if you right. take something like infinity, um, uh, Peter Van Maastricht will say God is um, omnimodally infinite, which means right. like in, he's in every way infinite. So when you when when you hear you know I think it's in you know it's in hymns, it's in uh, you know, statements of faith, you know, that God is in every way infinite. That's mm-hmm. omnimodal infinity. Um, and so in this sense that God's infinity applies to all the other attributes that you would predicate of God. So God is like infinite in love, right? He's infinite in all of his perfections. Um, so that, that, that doctrine of infinity is, is omnimodal in God because it applies in every way. Um, and so, uh, yeah. Anyway, that's that's kind of a more dogmatic, you know, explanation. I think yeah. of classical theism. Yeah, I think that's really helpful. And if you actually, if you're listening, you can go. I just did that chapter, uh, the chapter two video on the 1689 Confession. I talked a lot about a lot of those things uh, and kind of at a surface level. But certainly, I think that that's probably one of the easiest places to go to to look and just start defining those terms. I actually have here the. Um, this one, the 1689 Confession that's put out by Founders Ministries. And it's put into a modern English, uh, which can be good or bad. Uh, but there are places where sometimes it's helpful, especially if you're, if you're listening to this and you hear the word passions thrown out, which is he is invisible, has no body parts, or changeable emotions is what it's changed to in the modern English. And so sometimes things like that can really help you. Uh, but then, of course, you have to play out what do those things mean. Uh, and mm-hmm. so I think that's what we'll, we'll sort of get to some of those ideas in, in a little bit here. I don't want to jump ahead uh, because we do need to apply it to some doctrinal issues. But when we say that God has no passions or no changeable emotions, well, what does that mean? And then the accusations right. that get thrown out because of that. So we will jump to that in a little bit. Uh, but just keep in mind that, you know, as, as far as a standard definition of classical theism goes, I think that that I agree with you that that um, that first paragraph of chapter two in the 1689 confession is very succinct, is very helpful. Uh, but then uh, really that's a good segue even to what are some of the documents that you would say kind of enumerated the principles or the way that the doctrines developed through the history of the church and some of the documents that kind of uh, bring that. I hope y'all can't hear the piano under me. <laughs> yeah, no, you're good. Okay. <laughs> um, like I said, I have kids, so I'm used to it. And we have a piano too. So, you know, they're always down there trying to hit the keys. You're good. Um, so documents, uh, that is a, that's a really good question because I think uh, in the, in the current discussion, there's a lot of mud in the water in the sense that, you know, this has been made all about the person of Thomas Aquinas. Uh, and so if you are, uh, if you believe the doctrine of, of divine simplicity, if you call yourself a classical theist, you are all of a sudden considered a disciple of Thomas Aquinas, right? So this has become a very personal conversation and we've been unable to, I think at this point in the, in the, in the conversation at large, we've been unable to separate dudes from doctrines to borrow a phrase <laughs> I heard from, from Richard Barcelos. Um, I like that. But uh, yeah, yeah, we're, we're unable to separate do, or, or distinguish between dudes and doctrines. And so uh, the doctrine ends up becoming identified with the person. And so right. there's a lot of mud in the water now. And so I think it has been helpful to, to actually go back to uh, the creeds mm-hmm. um, uh, of the early church. I, I think the exegetical work is helpful to go back to the scriptures and show like, how does how does don't let's let's not only take this from our natural theology, which we can, I, I, I believe we can, um, but Scripture assumes nature, right? Grace, you know, the grace of Scripture doesn't destroy nature; it assumes nature, and so mm-hmm. a lot of what's apparent in nature and able to be deduced through nature is repeated uh, resoundingly throughout Scripture. And so, you know, there's there's Scripture, of course. That's that's if we're talking about documents, there's there's the first one. Um, but following on after scripture, 
throughout the history of the church, you know, you come to something like the uh, the ecumenical creeds, uh, and by that I would mean like uh, the Council of Nicaea and the Nicene Creed, mm-hmm. um, which I think is very uh, helpful in uh, in kind of understanding where the later theology is getting its cue from, in a sense. Yeah. Uh, the later the later theology is not. Uh, developing something that's wholly other than the theology of Nicaea, the later theology, um, when we're talking about orthodoxy, is is receiving Nicaea and expounding upon Nicaea. Hmm. And so, it, it, it's it's helpful to go back to those creeds like the Nicene Creed, and I would say even the the Athanasian Creed is right. a beautiful specimen of of an early documented you know, substantive agreement with the classical position. And if you, if you go back to those, those creeds and, and, and kind of investigate the historical context, get the authorial intent, you cannot walk away without some kind of uh, elementary doctrine of divine simplicity, um, obviously a saity, uh, immutability, um, and, uh, when, uh, especially when you when you when you drop this into an articulation of the doctrine of the Trinity, and you have, you know, the Athanasian Creed um, reject or remote any sort of gradation within the Godhead. Uh, there cannot be any a separation of essence amongst the persons. There is no greater or lesser amongst the persons. I mean, think of think of how that applies to modern conversations uh, about ESS, like eternal subordination of the mm-hmm. sun, right. where, you know, some, and, and just for your listeners, you know, some theologians today would say that there is a, you know, um, a, a, a difference uh, or, a, or a, 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 I guess a difference or a distinction in grade between the father and the son in terms of authority. And um, and the fo- the father's authority is supreme, and the son is kind of always eternally subjected to that authority. Um, you go back into the earlier creeds, and there just doesn't seem to be any room for that kind of language, especially when you understand it according to the authorial intent of the document. Right. And so I th- I think the creeds are very helpful. I would of course plug the Reformed confessions, specifically um the uh the second london baptist confession of faith because that's mine mm-hmm. and um uh you know that's a that's an example of how the earlier orthodoxy was received and appropriated to within you know a later developed high reformed uh you, you know post reformation context uh, yeah. and so it's 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 very well developed it's very specific it's 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 uh it's it's pretty much the it's the high point i think of our of our of the articulation of of these 32 doctrines that you find in the in the confession but uh, especially the doctrine of god yeah and so the you know i, I would want to say the reformed confessions and um if we're talking about works you know not just documents maybe not just confessions of faith or, or creedal statements but but also works um thomas's thomas aquinas's summa the first volume and then uh, first volume of the Summa Contra Gentiles, uh, both both are his, uh, would be you know an example of of where to you know and and just to say Thomas is not pulling his doctrine out of a vacuum. Um, there are some there are some helpful things that that Thomas you know improved in terms of our articulation of 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 doctrine, but mm-hmm. there's nothing substantially different in in Aquinas with regard to the doctrine of God, um, you know, that, that he would part ways from, uh, the Nicene fathers or from the Cappadocians or from, uh, you know, from, uh, from whoever drafted the Athanasian creed or whoever. So there's a great deal of continuity, um, from the very earliest years of, of the church, you know, throw Augustine in there as well, um, to the middle ages and up through the reformation and a great deal of reception in the reformation so you know literature works documents there's no shortage of them which is why i you know in a sense it's it indicts our age because there's a there's an embarrassment of riches in terms of of resource here and it and it seems like we we haven't done our due diligence for a long time in mining those resources and then just up 
through the last decade or so, there's been all this resourcement. And so conversation that wasn't happening in the 80s and 90s is, is now happening and should be happening, should have been happening a long time ago, but, but now it's happening to a greater degree. And I think we're better yeah. for it. So, yeah. And I, um, you know, going back to what you started at the beginning, there, just talking about Nicaea and the Athanasian creed. And I, I, I look at those and, and people will have, have no issue with saying that the Athanasian creed expands upon, um, you know, the hypostatic union and the nature of Christ and all these things. They have, they have no problem exp- uh, saying that it expands upon what was already present in Nicaea. Um, and yet with a lot of these other doctrines, when people come along and say, well, simplicity, for example, is present in Nicaea. So for some reason, that's, that's a no fly zone, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. um, but I don't, I'm not necessarily sure why, but we have a development of doctrine throughout the church. Uh, and we look back to, we look back to the development of those doctrines. And of course they, that came through, to use your terminology, dudes, <laughs> right? It came through yeah, dudes, but right. but uh, it doesn't mean that it was. It's attached to those dudes. It means that it's a natural progression of the the language that's being used uh, to ex- to expand upon the what was already present within mm-hmm. those uh, within those early creeds and documents. So, and you know, we see that going all the way in through the the. 17th century and the, as you get these wonderful reformation era um, documents that go through and really expand on it even more, which is why they're so much longer, obviously. Right. Uh, right. But then I, I think what you said near the end there too, was really important that we have an embarrassment of riches and we do. And it's, it's kind of unfortunate that we're having to write books about recovering our covenant, our confessional mm-hmm. heritage and uh, looking back at confessions of faith fondly rather than saying, Oh, that must be wrong. And I must dive into just scripture rather than actually using those as a as the the riches that they are and a, a system of words and doctrine uh, that's been right. preserved for us in some way so yeah I uh, I agree with you I think that's a really helpful thing to look at just make sure we go back to those those old documents and recognize these concepts are there uh, and yeah figure yeah. out how they've developed since then okay well and so I guess that kind of leads into the next question then how has it developed I mean we've got you mentioned a few of those names a few of those people. Uh, I put some people in the in the outline, uh, but I don't know if you want to follow with that that route, or if you think there's other people to mention, or uh, I don't know anything you want to. No, that's that's great. I uh, I'm glad you did that. Mm-hmm. I appreciate the question as well. Um, it, it but it's it's a big question, um, and I just I just sat through a a Dalazal class mm-hmm. uh, that was uh, quite uh, dense. It was yeah. like drinking from a fire hose and, <laughs> and, and in a lot of ways it's foundations of philosophical theology. And, uh, and so in a lot of ways it, it, it addresses this very question here in a sense, because it goes back, you know, there's a, there's, there was a brief, you know, a day or so that we spent on, on really the history of, of philosophy mm-hmm. and, and, um, and then, you know, kind of integrate that to within the theological context. Um, this is a, the reason the question is so dif- difficult is because, you know, like even in the outline, you have Plato there. Well, we think of Plato as a philosopher, not a theologian. Right. And um, and so already uh, you're, you're starting to get into the relationship between philosophy and theology. Mm-hmm. And um, in our day and age, when uh, the sciences are collapsed most of the time um, into one another, uh, we don't really have a clear grasp of the importance of distinguishing between philosophy and theology. And so it's thought that, you know, either we need to get rid of philosophy altogether, in which case we're just kind of blind to the inescapable reality of a philosophy. Uh, and we just cling to our Bibles and we say, this is all we need. And then we become undiscerning in terms of the world's philosophy and bad philosophy and so on and so forth. And that's really what happened, you know, post enlightenment, I think to, to the Christian world, at least in the West. Um, And so, uh, or, or, you know, you, you take philosophy and you say, well, yes, there's a philosophy, but it needs to be a a distinctly Christian philosophy. And in that sense, you, you begin to blend two sciences together, theology and philosophy, and you don't recognize the proper distinction and then you can end up in some kind of rationalism, right? Where, mm-hmm. uh, you know, kind of faith is overshadowed by um, a kind of rationalistic, syllogistic uh, form of, of the Christian religion. And, and, and that's it, which I would note that Thomas Aquinas was actually an enemy of <laughs> to one extent. And yeah. so, um, 
And so uh, it's a difficult it's a difficult question to to jump into when you're looking at development. Of course, all, the, the other question that you ask is when do you start? Like when could we start? You could start all the way back at the at the at the pre-Socratics and and look at things that they were playing around with and trying to figure out. You could start with Plato, uh, Socrates, um, or you could start with with Aristotle, uh, or you could start with. Um, you know, you could start with someone like Augustine or something like that. So where do you start? Um, and I would just say this because there's, there's Plato and Aristotle are hot button names right, right now. Yeah. Um, so you have Dr. Craig Carter, who you said you've had on, who is, you know, emphasizing w- what he calls Christian Platonism. That bothers a lot of people right? because they immediately think pagan, you're trying to jam a pagan system into the Christian system. And that doesn't, and of course that's not what he means, but that's, that's where people's minds go. And, uh, and of course with the recent, you know, the kind of kerfuffle with, with uh, Aquinas um, is, you know, that he is, he is essentially trying to do the same thing, but with Aristotle. Um, And he's trying to, the, the, the phraseology has been used. He's trying to baptize Aristotle. Yeah. And, um, and then the, the Puritans who we call, you know, the, the post-Reformation, uh, reform scholastics, you know, made the same mistake trying to appropriate Thomas Aquinas's use of Aristotle. So people like Charnock and Turretin and so on and so forth, you know, made a mistake in, in doing that. They departed from, you know, the, the real reformational way started by the first generation reformers. Mm-hmm. And so you have all of this baggage that comes along when you hear the name Aristotle or Plato. Yeah, but sure. I do think it is important to 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 actually start there. If you're looking just a a historical development, to look at someone like Plato or look at someone like Aristotle, and at least at least make the effort to observe where they may have gotten some things right. Um, and I think with Plato and Aristotle, what they what they got right was they number one they were asking the right questions. So uh, they didn't always answer the questions the right way, right, yeah. but they were they were asking the right questions because they're coming out of you know the pre-Socratics who uh, they were essentially what they were doing were, they were blending the sciences as well. So they were they were taking natural science they were they were naturalists properly so called, and they were trying to explain metaphysical you know truths that are transcendental of this creation. They were trying to explain things that are beyond the material realm with material instruments. Hmm. And so you get the whole, uh, you know, that you get the whole uh, kind of debate between Heraclitus and Parmenides and, you know, uh, Heraclitus, you never step in the same river twice. So nothing, you know, everything is nothing but change. And then Parmenides, you know, change is illusory. Nothing changes really. And they're trying to deal with the problem of the one and the many. But without taking your listeners through a survey of philosophy, because that's really not what we're trying to get yeah. at, Plato and Aristotle asked the right questions. And, and, and I think what Plato and Aristotle hit on was a metaphysic of reality, or we would just call it realism, right? And, um, and, and realism was the context in one, to one extent or another, whether it was you know, uh, kind of hyper or, 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 or extreme realism from Plato on the one hand, or, or more of a moderate uh, realism from Aristotle on the other. Hmm. That saturated the first century world. So when you're, when you're asking the question of development, and, you know, we're talking about Plato and Aristotle, and, and those are two names that cause a great deal of offense today, you have to realize that the ideas that they hit on, the truths that they hit on, absolutely saturated the world into which the gospel came. Right. Yeah. And so I've tried to make that point several times as well. That I mean, that yeah. God God reveals Himself when and where He did for a reason. I think that that's right. very important. That God revealed Himself in an environment uh, where right. this kind of thought process of thought was happening. So sorry. Continue. In yeah. Nope. You're exactly right. In His providence, you know, you don't have to assign any brilliance to men Mm -hmm. you just have to say that in god's providence he ordered the minds of certain men at a certain time in preparation a certain kind of preparation for the world as it were to the gentile world especially to receive something like the gospel yeah and um and so but but 
but having that in mind, when you read Paul, he appropriates Cicero on multiple occasions. Mm-hmm. But but you see, you wouldn't you wouldn't get that if so if you if you refuse to to study any sort of of language or any sort of of material from the philosophers, you may not pick up on that. And I'm not saying that's essential to understanding the substance of Scripture. I, I, I don't, I'm an enemy of saying that you have to to understand the historical context in order to understand the subject matter of the Bible. I'm an enemy of that. I think that's higher critical. Uh, you know, uh, that's a that's a higher critical approach. But but yeah. you're missing something that's valuable that it would at least be you know kind of enlightening if mm-hmm. you were to to understand that that Paul is. Paul is making use of of the tools of his world, the world that he was born into, the world that he grew up in, the concepts and categories that he was used to, and he's using those things to appeal to uh, certain unbelievers. So in Acts fourteen, Acts seventeen, right? That's what I was thinking. <laughs> you see, right? You see his you see his use of philosophy in service of theology, and and it's and it's. And it's almost a flawless transition from, uh, you know, talking about the unknown God into God has set a day or determined a day by, you know, and, and, and chosen a man by which he will judge the world, right? I mean, right. it's a pretty flawless, you know, seamless argument. Um, and so with that, with that said, that's a, you know, Plato and Aristotle you know, were used by God as an instrumental means to 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 form the world into into the world that the gospel eventually came into, uh, the the world that Christ was born into, mm-hmm. um, and and following from the New Testament, that's that really doesn't change a whole lot. Um, you know, you have uh, people assuming the same kind of philosophical categories some are more platonic some are more aristotelian in their approaches um you know augustine has been you know allegedly you know in in more support of a neoplatonic kind sure, of metaphysic right. and than some of the others um but but realism has been received it's the working metaphysic of the biblical world number one and it's the working metaphysic of the world that proceeds after the Bible is after the canon is closed. Mm-hmm. And so um, you move up to Augustine, you have Augustine making arguments from the natural world for the existence of God. Right. Uh, he does have a doctrine of like infused knowledge, innate knowledge, and that's, that's his Platonism coming out. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but he feels at liberty to make arguments through, through, through nature and come to a conclusion uh, concerning the God who created this world, and that tradition of doing that never ceased really up until yeah. you get to really the time of the Enlightenment. I mean, men have been making arguments for the existence of God, you know, practically for the entire duration of of the Christian Church, and really they're coming to quite Catholic conclusions. I mean, if you're talking about Christians who are making these arguments. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and they're they're able to know, you know, the the power of God, the wisdom of God, uh, the unity of the Godhead. God is one, um, and they're they're able to know all of these things through, you know, through nature. And so, this would be brought in to the service of theology. It wouldn't be brought in as kind of a a foundation upon which the whole of, you know, uh, revealed theology would sit and be determined by. But the, the the philosophical tools that had been received into the early church's world uh, came in as a great help for the our, our creaturely articulation of these eternal divine realities. Yeah. Right. And so, like when you get to Nicaea, and and people take this for granted today that we just say Christ is one person in whom there are united two natures, uh, divine nature and a, and a human nature. Uh, we refer to that as the hypostatic union. I've just used, you know, three, well, two, maybe two, well, three, actually, three philosophical terms mm-hmm. that do not have a technical use in Scripture. They may be, the words themselves may be used um, in Scripture, but they don't have a technical, philosophical, or, or systematic theological use in Scripture. Sure. Yeah. Like they do in, in at the Council of Nicaea 
And what the Council of Nicaea is doing is they're they're using philosophical terminology as a help, as an aid, as a handmaiden. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> to to formulate the creed, right? To articulate that which is revealed in Scripture. And so they're using philosophy in the service of theology. And that's something that really never stops happening up until really the Enlightenment. Um, and it happens to one degree or another. But you don't have, in large part, you don't have Christians saying, um, unless you're Tertullian or something like that, but he was in the minority. And he was in the minority on a lot of things, not just that. But in general, you have Christians making use of philosophy. They're not antagonistic toward it mm-hmm. um, in, in, in service of theology. And they're not using the systems of the pagans. They're using the truth that the pagans hit on, and that is what they call philosophy. So Christians aren't, uh, Christians aren't taking like Plato's system and, you know, trying to baptize it into Christianity. Yeah. They're taking, they're taking certain principles that Plato hit on or that Aristotle hit on and they're, and they're using those principles as an aid to, to discuss yeah. Christian theology. Yeah. Um, and I and think so, that's, that's really helpful for us to kind of frame the conversation because uh, what, what tends to happen later on is we get, we get people now. And I think where the antagonism lies now is that people, again, they don't want to make that distinction and say that um, philosophy is, it comes along as a handmaiden to theology and mm-hmm. then how it's been used. They want to take certain um, figures like even John Calvin, um, and say right. that, well, John Calvin, you know, was essentially Vantillian and <laughs> did, did right. not have, uh, the same kind of categories for natural theology and things like that. And so that's, that's all stuff that we could dive into and probably worth whole other episodes on. But I want to make sure we have time to get to some of these doctrinal, uh, components that we were talking about, uh, as well yep. in this outline. So knowing all of that and knowing that, um, uh, yeah, and having established, at least um, as far as we can, that uh, philosophy and that this kind of framework is helpful and that we should look at it that way, uh, then there's a few different kind of doctrines that really I would like to kind of focus in on, uh, particularly around the theology proper and in soteriology. Um, there's two that I listed in our outline about uh, theology proper, which you know, for listeners is just the, the doctrine of God himself. We talk about theology very broadly uh, and include all sorts of things in there, but you know, what is true about God is theology proper. And so in this case, we've already mentioned a couple of these terms. One of them is simplicity. Uh, and the other one is timelessness, but I really want to talk about simplicity first. Um, that, that's gotten a lot of, of talk lately, ever, essentially since uh, Dolezal has come out with his book, All That Is In God, um, and some other things like that. And so uh, what, what, is, what is simplicity? Why is it important for us to understand God as simple rather than complex? And we're running up on like 17 minutes on our time, so this is going to be really right, right. short end. <laughs> it's okay though. Got, here we go. Here we go. This is a machine gun answer. Yeah. All right. So we got, we've got chapter two of the confession, which uses that language that God is without body parts or passions. So the first paragraph of the second chapter never uses the term simplicity explicitly, right. mm-hmm. but when it says God is without body parts or specifically when it says that God is without body and part and, and he's without parts that's a reference that's an allusion to the doctrine of divine simplicity um and so the doctrine of divine simplicity just basically states that god is not composed of parts if you read someone like herman bavink on divine simplicity he 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 really dwindles it down to to that simple of a definition you know god god is not composed that's yeah. that's really it um then the, the question then becomes a lot of christians will affirm that verbally but then the question becomes like okay God is not composed of obviously a body, right? Mm-hmm. We, we, we know that he's not like just a big man in the sky. He's not composed of, of those kinds of parts, but we can't see how his attributes or properties, you know, could, could be essentially relegated to the divine essence in, yeah, right. I, in their identity, right? So how, how you know, and, and some people call that the identity thesis. I'm not a big fan of that, but hmm. um, some, 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 some people will, will, will call that the identity thesis. They'll say, well, all God's attributes are, you know, become one in him. And I think there's a better way to talk about that, uh, frankly. But um, anyway, the, uh, the, the question is then, Okay, we all agree that God's not made of a body. We all agree that he doesn't have arms and legs, eyes, ears, nose, blah, blah, sure. blah, blah, blah. Right. Um, but we can't, we can't 
you know, scripture speaks as if God is actually, you know, actually has these attributes. And these are definitionally, these are distinct attributes. And so that would lead us to say that there's a real distinction between attributes and God. And that's the, that's probably the most popular way to, to, to deny or to question or to kind of critically approach the doctrine of divine simplicity. And I say critically approach because that denial of partition in God, that, that, that statement that God is not composed of parts is very absolute in the historical literature, in the historical understanding of the church. That is a very absolute statement. God is not composed of any parts. Doesn't matter if they're physical parts that we're talking about or, or more abstract metaphysical qualities or parts that we're talking about. God does not have any parts, period. And so you have, you know, in Dalzell's book, all that is in God is God. Right. That's a very helpful statement, I think. Um, better than saying that all of God's attributes become one, because I think what people think is they think that there are all these pieces that now somehow we're irrationally just combining into one, you know, thing. And and so uh, it becomes confusing to say it that way. Yeah. Whereas if you come from it the other side and say, you know, God is all say, that means he's self-existent. He exists through himself. He cannot exist through that which is not himself. Therefore, all that is in God is God, right? I think that lays the the framework for understanding simplicity better. Um, yeah. If, oh, go ahead. Go well, ahead. so I was just going to say, I think then the, the question that gets thrown out pretty quickly is, and you mentioned attributes and how, mm-hmm. um, you know, we're, we're identifying all these, what are true attributes of God as, as um, just the, and I don't even want to say part of the essence of God, but, right. um, but you, you understand what I'm coming from, where I'm coming from. And I think yeah. that's where people actually start to have trouble. They say, well, you can't even really define it then. How do you differentiate God's justice from God's love or God, you know, so, and maybe you can tease that out a little bit and explain for us how do we, how do we then differentiate or is that just analogical language and, uh, right. how does that work for us? Yeah. No, that's, that's a good, that's a good, uh, observation. So, um, some people will talk about some historical theologians will will talk about um, th- there being a f- a formal distinction amongst God's attributes in that they they differ definitionally in our understanding how how we understand these attributes they differ in terms of their definition but I but I would just I would want to back up to answer your question that God's attributes when we predicate an attribute of God what we're doing is we're saying this is how God has revealed himself to me. Right. And I, w- I like to think of the attributes as, as refractions of the divine revelation that we right. receive through, through created means, whether that be nature or scripture. Scripture is a created means. Like right. scripture is not God, so it's creature. It's on the creature end of the creator-creature distinction. Mm-hmm. And so we are bound to know God in discursive, you know, um, kind of stepwise ways. Like we have to, we can't look at all of God because God's incomprehensible. We're finite. We're not infinite. And so we, we have to know God in a different way than that. We can't know God according to his infinity, properly speaking, because we're finite and the finite cannot comprehend the infinite. Yes, that right. Infinitum non capax infinity. And so, so God God condescends to us through revelation and how he reveals himself to us cashes out in those attributes right so so to to kind of uh piggyback on what you already alluded to this is this is anal- we're in the world now of analogical predication where we are not talking about God in a uh in a in a one for one correlative sense so I can't talk about God like I would talk about the lawnmower in the backyard. I can't talk about God like I would talk about my 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 kids downstairs, right? right? Um, there's a sense in which my terms, my language, can get a hold of creaturely things, um, and 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 can can to one extent or another comprehend them even. Um, but when we're talking about God, who's an infinite substance, uh, infinite being, and our language being finite. We, we have to understand that our language applies to God only by way of analogy, uh, by way of, of similitude, likeness. So when I say that, 
God is love. What I'm saying is that there's there's something like what I know to be love in God, but really because God is in infinite, he's infinite love, we might say, I can't define what that is. You know, uh, there's no definition that I could express, no words that I could attribute or predicate of him that would comprehend the love that is in God. And so I'm, I'm already taking my creaturely conception of love and I'm applying it to God because I have to, Yeah, right. I have no other, I have no other way to, 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 to predicate. I have no other way to speak or think mm-hmm. I'm a creature and bound therefore by creaturely categories. So, um, so when we're talking about God's attributes, I think that's how we should understand them in terms of our theology, how we do theology, our language in terms of our theology, uh, our God talk, to, to borrow uh, yeah. another Dolezal term. Um, and so it's not saying that, you know, we're not saying that, um, you know, the attributes are just flowery, flowery terms that we apply to God, but really there's nothing like that in God. Really, there's no, there's no way in which we can, pro- you know, actually say that there is love or, uh, or, or, glory or holiness in God. It's right. just, it's just, you know, that's just a flowery poetic way of, of talking about this thing we can't know, this <laughs> nebulous substance beyond us that we can't know. That's not what we're saying at all. Um, there is some correspondence. It's just analogical correspondence. Yeah. We don't like that because. Right. We want to know. <laughs> right. But, uh, you know, the, 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 the old scholastics would say, well, you can't define God. Uh, you can't you can't define his essence because the second you define something, to the extent you are able to define it, you can comprehend it. And yeah, so, right. uh, if God is incomprehensible, then you know definition doesn't apply. I can describe God in creaturely categories that apply to him by way of analogy. Yeah, I like that too. I was I was thinking the same thing you kind of mentioned at the end there. I was going to say that you know if if God is incomprehensible, as soon as God reveals himself to us in a way that is comprehensible to us, then that is no longer really God, like, you know, fully comprehensible to us. And so, well, yeah, think, think about like, even just how you, how you said it, as soon as God reveals himself. Yeah, right. So already we're talking about an effect through which mm-hmm. we know God. Yeah. Namely revelation because revelation is, 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 is that which reveals God to us. Revelation is not God himself. It is God's revelation of himself to us. So we're already talking about, um, you know, us receiving, uh, a, a kind of immediate, immediate knowledge. It's not immediate in the sense that this is, this is God's revelation of himself. There's something, there's, there's something that he uses to communicate himself to us. Um, and, and he does that through creaturely means, whether yeah. that be the scriptures, the word on the page, or, you know, that which we can know of him through nature. Yeah. So let's, let's jump to the other one really quickly. And again, we're going to, not going to have much time, but luckily I think a lot of the principles that we just talked about really apply to the idea of timelessness as mm-hmm. well. So, so when we say timeless, what, what do we mean by timeless? Um, obviously, is it, does it mean that God is, is, uh, you know, he, he exists in the future and the past and the present or how do we even, how do we even discuss that using even our revealed creaturely language? <laughs> right. Um, we say that God is actus purus. That means pure actuality and there's no passive potency in God, which means there's no, uh, there's no capacity for God to be acted upon by another. And what, what potency is, like when we're talking about passive potentiality, what that is is a limiting principle that exists in contingent being. So like, for example, I as a creature have, I'm actual, but to the extent that I could be another way other than I am, I'm potential to be that way other than I am, than I currently am. So I have the, I'm sitting right now that my sitting is actual, right? but I have the potential to stand or I have the potential to sit yet further down lower on the floor, in which case you guys couldn't see me. So I'm not going to do that, (laughs) but that is that those are, those are certain potencies that I have. Um, God doesn't have potency like that. God is only actuality. He's pure actuality. There is no potentiality in him yet to be 
realized or actual actualized. Um, and so when we, when we use these words like timelessness or infinity, what we're, those are actually negative terms. They are removing limitation from God um, in, in proper observance of his infinity. So infinity even removes the limitation of finitude from God, infinite. Right. right. So God is not finite. Um, timelessness removes uh, any sort of uh, process in God, any sort of, uh, uh, you know, uh, progress from one moment to another. Um, God does is not time bound. He's timeless. Uh, and so, you know, talking about uh, timelessness is almost like more of a modern term. The, the, the older guys would use eternity. And they would say eternity is just God's infinity considered according to duration. So eternity really just is God's infinity according to duration. And right. really what it does is it denies or remotes or rejects that there's any sort of process uh, of, of, you know, motion in God. If we understand time really just to be a, a measurement of change. And so if God doesn't change, if God doesn't have any potentiality uh, that can be acted upon and actualized and thus undergo some kind of motion or movement or change, then God is necessarily timeless. Um, mm, God does right. not undergo any sort of succession in moments. There's no way to measure any change in him because he does not change. Yeah. Right. So this is very much con uh, connected to immutability, mm -hmm. self-existence. You see how these, these, uh, these, these doctrines uh, mutually inform one another. And so I try to, you know, when, when I talk to Christians who, who question simplicity because they're not sure how it all shakes out in the end, um, and, and they've been told it's, you know, just Aristotle's doctrine of God baptized into the Christian religion, I, I try to go to, a, to another, you know, incommunicable attribute that we would all agree on, namely God's aseity uh, or his immutability. And, and, and most Christians will affirm those doctrines, and it's very easy to show how simplicity must ensue or vice versa, if you start with simplicity, how immutability and eternality and infinity must ensue as well, right, yeah. um, to, to, to kind of try to find a, a point of agreement, you know, and, and, uh, and then show how simplicity necessarily follows from something like a saity, mm -hmm. God's self-existence. Um, but, but on the timelessness question, uh, if God is not composed most basically of something like uh, actuality and potentiality, if he's not composed of those two things, but he's pure act, then there is no potential in him to undergo any sort of motion. Thus, he cannot be measured according to time. Thus, he's timeless. Right. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. That's a really helpful way of framing it, I think, as well. And I, we, we could talk about that for so much longer and uh, somebody mentioned earlier in the in the chat oh this is this must just be part one and so i'll have to have right. you come back and we'll tease out like the full like one of these things at a time and, and go uh, go over a little bit more in depth maybe that'd be kind of fun. yeah that'd be but, great uh, i have a child opening a door well let's go ahead and uh, wrap up then i really appreciate you coming on do you want to kind of plug anything or talk about um you know like your podcast a little bit more and we already talked about some of those things but anything you want to plug yeah i'll just that I'll just give a couple of websites and and remind everybody uh, of the uh, of the podcast. So it's the Baptist Broadcast, and you can you can find that online at the Baptist at the Baptist dot com. Uh, you can access the podcast through there. You can access the YouTube channel from there as well. But if you just go onto YouTube, you can just search my name, Josh Summer. Probably one of the first channels to come up. Um, and then also um, in terms of of my preaching content and. Uh, and what my dear church gets to hear me uh, go on about week in and week out. Uh, you can go to Victory Baptist Church or, or victorybaptistkc.org, and you can access sermons through there, teaching series through there as well, uh, because you can get to our sermon audio profile through there. So thebaptistbroadcast.com and victorybaptistkc.org um, is, is where you can, can, find more, can find more content. So Perfect. All right. Well, uh, if you wouldn't mind, could you just pray for us as we head out for Absolutely. <laughs> the evening? Thanks. Absolutely. Our glorious God in heaven, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we, um, we give you thanks that you have uh, revealed yourself to us, that you have revealed yourself to us in ways that we can apprehend and understand.
you've been very gracious to us, uh, more than we can ever uh, properly know in your revelation, both through the created world and most primally in your holy scriptures, uh, where we see the gospel revealed unto salvation in the person and work of the incarnate Son. And um, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for uh, this conversation. Uh, here, maybe it was less of a conversation and more of a monologue, but uh, we do pray, Lord, that nevertheless you would grant understanding to the audience, that you would grant understanding to us, um, and and help us to grow in our knowledge and wisdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would mature in our love for you and our love for one another, that you would make us like yourself by the power of your spirit, according to your word. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, Josh, we appreciate you coming on. Guys, if you haven't already, go to his channel, hit subscribe uh, so that you can see his videos as well. He's got a lot more stuff on this exact topic. Definitely check it out on Twitter as well and all the other places that you can find uh, his content that he mentioned before. So uh, thanks again for joining me, Josh. And for you guys who are listening, I hope you guys were blessed by this conversation and we'll catch you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to Regenerated Radio. If this resource was edifying or encouraging, I hope you'll consider leaving a five-star review on your podcast app of choice. Also, be sure to subscribe to the YouTube channel for live podcasts, theology primers, book reviews, and more. Have a blessed week, and we'll see you next time.